Welcome to the Deep Dive Spirituality Conversations podcast. I'm your host, Brian Russell, and today it's a real privilege to have as my guest, James Brian Smith. He's the author of the newly released The Good and Beautiful You, Discovering the Person Jesus Created You to Be. Those that follow this podcast, and especially those who've heard some of my solo casts, know how much I emphasize the need for us to serve and minister out of our true identity as a person loved by God and not simply get caught up into all the different roles that we play in life, even good roles such as pastor or wife or husband or mother or father. Those are roles that we play. That's not who we really are. In my conversation today with uh, Jim Smith, we're going to do that deep dive into what he calls the good and beautiful you. You're going to love this conversation. Uh, Before we jump into the interview, let me remind uh, my listeners of a couple of things. First of all, if you're interested in going a little deeper in centering prayer, I'd invite you to subscribe to centeringprayerbook.com and I will share some information about Centering Prayer with you and you'll also get invites to the monthly Centering Prayer gathering that I co-host with my good friend and fellow Centering Prayer author uh, Rich Lewis on Saturdays. Uh, The next one will be July 9th, 2022 and then looking ahead to August, it'll be August 27th. We do those at noon Eastern. Again, we'll be doing these for the foreseeable future, so regardless at what point you're listening to this podcast, go ahead and uh, sign up today at centeringprayerbook.com. Now, without further ado, let's uh, listen in to this rich, deep dive into spiritual formation and to the person that God created you to be with Dr. Jim Smith. Hi, Jim. Welcome to the Deep Dive Spirituality Conversations podcast. Nice to be on your show, Brian. Thank you. Yeah, and can you share some key moments in your life, and I know you've had, had a lot of them, and then your spiritual journey that's led you to today, where you serve as an author of many really excellent spiritual formation books, and also as a professor of spiritual formation? Yeah, um, you know, I, I didn't, I grew up in the church, but it just wasn't working for me as a kid. I, I found it pretty boring. I didn't see the connection to a lot. Um but when I was uh, 17, 18, going into my senior year, I was just empty. Something was, I, I, and I started reading a lot of books, ended up uh, a guy who was kind of led me to Christ, had me read Mere Christianity. We read the gospels together. And I thought, this Jesus guy, I like him. And so gave my life to Christ. And I was a, a new Christian, went to college and um, joined a fellowship group. And uh, pretty quickly, these guys in this group were like, you should go into ministry. I was like, I'm a baby Christian. I shouldn't do not even close. And they said, well, you should at least explore it and study that. So I ended up going to Friends University in Wichita, Kansas, where I am now. But uh, Richard Foster was a professor there. And I took a class with him. And he taught about practicing spiritual disciplines, about a deeper spiritual life, um, Richard was this really authentic guy who had this life with God that was so winsome. I thought, I, I just want what he's doing. I want to, I want to experience what he's having. And, and um, so Richard mentored me for a few years and, and that was huge. That was life-changing for me because I would learn how to have a, 
a face-to-face -face contact with with God in prayer um, and that just that motivated everything I wasn't sure I wanted to go into ministry I wasn't sure I wanted to, what I wanted to do with it but I eventually I went on to seminary and got ordained and was in the local church for a few years my gifts are really more teaching and so uh, I ended up as a chaplain and a professor at Friends University in 1990, you know, 32 years ago. So, and have been there ever since. So that, yeah, those are some of the high points. Dallas Willard was a part of a, we started a movement called Renovare, a ministry, started that. Richard had the vision for that and uh, gathered Dallas Willard, who was a longtime friend of his and some others. And we, we started that in 1988. When we started that, spiritual formation wasn't something that people talked about. Protestants, anyway, didn't talk about it much. So it's a bit of an uphill battle for a while. People thought it was New Age Eastern mysticism and things. What are you doing? I mean, you've written on Centering Prayer, Brian. I mean, Centering Prayer, I was like, oh, what are these doing? Is they're Buddhists or something? So uh, it was a long, long uh, haul early on. But within a few decades, spiritual formation had really taken root, part of churches, part of the way we think about the faith now, I mean, the impact of Richard and Dallas's work has been huge. Yeah, I'm going to ask you to say a few more things about uh, maybe Dallas Willard a minute, but just did you just kind of raise the uh, kind of the the classic critique? Because yeah, I've been accused of teaching Buddhism myself with uh, centering prayer, and I, I know how I talk about that, and I try to articulate that in the book. But so like when people do say that, and you, I'm sure you still hear it in certain quarters about the new age kind of stuff. So how do you differentiate Christian spiritual formation from spirituality? If someone's going to say, hey, aren't you, are you really just teaching Eastern mysticism or something over against something that's authentically Christian? How do you usually have those conversations with, uh, with persons of goodwill, at least? Yeah, it's a great question. And, you know, quite often when, when people talk about spirituality, they're talking about certain practices. Like, you know, if I'm on the plane and I meet somebody, they ask what I do. Um, you've maybe experienced this too, Brian, but when they know I'm a Christian or, you know, they'll, I'll, I'll often hear this phrase, well, I, I'm spiritual, but not religious. And uh, that's usually code for, I don't like church organized stuff, but I, you know, I do some practices. And um, Eastern meditation is really about detachment and Christian meditation is about attachment. That's good. Uh, I'm trying to connect to someone, uh, in this case, God. I'm not trying to detach from the world or get into a place of nothing. I'm actually engaging with some something with a capital S. And so, but spiritual formation, what's, a good, what's great about your question is spiritual formation is more about um, the transformation of the human person. Like it's about heart change, character development, uh, it's not just I do a set of practices. It's it's those practices are serving a larger purpose, which is the transformation of my character. Yeah, thank That's you. what Christian spiritual formation is. That's good. I, I love that. I love that the simplicity of that answer, really. So thank you very much for that. And you said a couple things about Richard Foster, but if there's other ones, I again, I just. Um, Marvel to just even reading the beginning part of your book there, you had the privilege of knowing Richard Foster, you were right there at the start of Renovari, Dallas Willard, you said you didn't personally meet Adrian Von Kahn, but you, you, you knew Susan Muto. So can you just talk, basically say a few things about uh, what you learned from these, uh, these teachers that a lot of folks uh, know the names? Yeah, you know, I, I joke, Brian, I, I, I call myself the Forrest Gump of, uh, of the Christian world, you know, because Forrest Gump, he ended up meeting all of these famous people, John Lennon, Muhammad Ali, John Kennedy. I mean, he, he met all these people and it was all an accident. Like he didn't merit that. And I feel that way too, because 
you know, I've met, worked with Richard, worked with Dallas. Through Richard, I got to know Henry Nowen a little bit. Wow. Um, Brennan Manning was an important person in my life. I bumped into Brennan uh, back in the 90s, and he and I became friends. Rich Mullins um, lived in our attic apartment for two and a half years, and Rich was a great friend and a big influence. And so, yeah, I've just been blessed through the years of, um, of getting to know people uh, that are really incredible voices in the formation world and uh, I just feel really blessed to to have done that and you know Richard Richard was the first one he was just such an authentic guy as I said and really different he's he's funny people don't really think of him as funny because you read his books and they seem serious so but he and I did we did 56 Renovari regional conferences over a seven-year period we did like 80 year for seven years so we traveled all the time and people would sometimes say that they they come up to me like secretively and go, I didn't know he was so funny. I didn't know he was, I, you know, I read his books and I thought he was very serious, but Richard is a blast. Dallas too. Dallas was funny and we had great laughs together, but Dallas, my gosh, that guy is, you know, he is the most brilliant man that lived that I knew. I mean, there really wasn't any area he didn't, he wasn't conversant in. I mean, one time he and I were speaking at an event in San Francisco, we're checking into a hotel and there was a woman who was checking us in and she had an accent and I said I, I can tell you have an accent where are you from and she said I'm from Hungary and um and Dallas was there you know and I, I turned to Dallas and I said I don't know anything about Hungary I, I couldn't tell you and and not to be show off or anything Dallas said well Hungary is going through an interesting period right now and their political blah 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 and their economy is this and I just thought you have that loaded up how do you just know <laughs> the state of of Hungary I'm not sure I could find it on the map right or the globe and he can tell me, and he was just like that. He, he was so well ready. He knew sports. He knew so many things, but boy, was he, he was deep. And wow. so really a blessing just to be around, just to pick up things from his life. Yeah, thank you. And, you know, we're here today to talk about your, your new book, uh, The Good and the Beautiful You. And you have a, a series of books that you've been writing with the same basic title for a number of years now. You have The Good and Beautiful God, The Good and the Beautiful Life, The Good and the Beautiful Community. Uh, how does this new book flow from those previous projects? And why is it needed now? And, like, and who would you say you wrote it for? Yeah, those are great questions. I, uh, well, I didn't, this book wasn't in the original series. It was a trilogy. So Good and Beautiful God, Life and Community came out um, so, uh, like 09, 2010 and 2011. They came out, I wrote them, I, I developed them um, through field testing as a formation curriculum in Christlikeness was what I was attempting to do. And I felt like that it was done. Um, but then about five years ago, I was in England and um, there was a, a pastor there who'd used the books in a lot of different settings. And he said, um, said, I love the books. Good, Beautiful God really helped people with their God narratives. I've, that's borne great fruit. Thank you for that. I said, thanks, Joe. And then he said, but you're missing one book. And I thought, okay, that's interesting to tell an author you're, you, you're missing a book in a series. I said, okay, and he's a good guy. And so I knew he meant well. So I said, well, what, what is that? And uh, Joe went on to say, it would be something like the good and beautiful you, because people have, you can help people with their toxic God narratives, but people have equally toxic self narratives. And he said, I just see that in ministry. I, I listen to people and there's just so much, um, you know, the way people think about themselves is, is, is so negative. 
And so I knew when he said it, that he was right. And that one day I would write it. It wasn't the right time for me to write it. So it it would take, you know, five more years for that to come to fruition. And, um, but he planted the seed in that. And so your, your other question, like, who is it for? I, I just, I think everybody is searching for their identity. They want to like, who am I is a, is a question everybody has to ask and answer. And the culture that we live in um, will tell us that we're a self, we're an isolated individual and, and, and really neglect the fact that we're embodied souls. So this book was, was my sort of theological anthropology to use the big words to say, who are we? Well, we're, we're embodied souls. We have bodies that's extremely important. Jesus had a body. Jesus has a resurrection body. We'll have a resurrection body. Bodies are God's plan for us. And, and yet we have souls. We have these, there's a spiritual dimension to us, a non-physical dimension to us that's really significant. So um, I wanted to write about that. Dallas wrote Renovation of the Heart. And, um, and that would really explain a lot of sort of the mechanics of the human person. But I wanted to approach it from the basis of we have a soul. It has a lot of needs. And those needs can only be met by God. So that's that's the book in a nutshell. Uh, and I, I love that. And uh, that question, who are we really? Um, again, hopefully this is teeing it up for you. Why, why is that critical to be able to answer that correctly for this deep Christian spiritual formation that you're trying to facilitate in people? Yeah, well, I think in, on one hand, Brian, you have a culture that sees us, we swim in a secular culture, right? It's a secular age, secular meaning non-spiritual. So the world that we're living in is going to evaluate our worth on the basis, and this is from Henry Nouwen, on three things, how I look, what I have, and what I do. Yeah. And the world that you and I are swimming in, those three ways of evaluating a person's worth have won the day. It's physical appearance, it's talents and abilities, um, and it's, it's our, our station in life, you know, um, and that's just the, we're swimming in it, right? That's what I keep saying. It's like, it's, it's, we can't escape that reality. So on one hand, that's how we, we view ourselves as a self. And therefore it's an isolated individual who's trying to determine his or her worth or improve, you know, establish our significance on the one hand. And then sometimes in our churches, there's some pretty negative views of the self that we're a horrible, rotten sinner that deserves to, you know, burn in hell forever because of, of the rottenness of who we are. And uh, I'm not denying the reality of our of sin or the fall, but but I think there's ways of looking at ourselves that are so dark and negative that even in in churches that that we we get that message. So I wanted to say, no, you're fearfully and wonderfully made in this book. You are divinely designed, divinely desired. Uh, you have this incredible body and soul that was made for God and made for to be loved and desired and, and to have a calling and a mission. This is who you are. So that's that's what I was hoping to do. No, oh, and I think you do. And I mean, in, in the book, and we'll get into a little bit more some of the details here, but you also just you aren't just writing about these things. We actually have practices embedded in the book to help people to guide and be able to bring this in, you know, click the head with their heart, if you want to say that, or even with their hands, I think. So I think you've done that beautifully well. Early on in the book, I love this this piece that you shared about yourself where you had this transformational week that you spent with a, a counselor when you just said you've just flat out felt empty. 
Um, I know I've been through that season. And uh, I mean, I think I have experienced like a dark night of, I mean, I think I think one of them lasted for three years, just total Mm. emptiness. And I know what that part of my story is how to how I kind of bounced back out of that in a slightly different way than you Mm. did. But I totally resonated with the story. And you, you learned how to essentially care for your soul. And, you know, I work with enough pastors, I, you know, I teach at a seminary like you do. So you work with pastors and you probably see it even in students who are sometimes already in ministry, they're so overwhelmed, they're already experiencing burnout before they essentially even get into their ministry. So given your story, and again, I I think it's almost a, I don't know if it's a universal story, but it's pretty close to, it's like, how do we help persons to learn the very lesson that you learned um, earlier in ministry? um, Or does it really take actually hitting that dark night of the soul to open a person up to this deeper lesson? Well, I mean, uh, uh, hopefully not. I mean, if that's (laughs) the way that it does, um, and there's reasons for that. But yeah, there's, there's something Certainly, with people in ministry, I'm I'm privileged to speak to pastors a fair amount. Um, I'll be doing a retreat in a few weeks with some pastors in Tennessee, and um, and so I, I I listen and I hear this. I love the church, and so I, I care about the church, and therefore I care about the shepherds who who are over those churches. And yeah. it is a real problem that, uh, and I, I remember uh, a pastor once said to Dallas, you know, the, the church isn't paying me to take care of my soul; mm-hmm. they're paying me to do the job of you know caring for others and doing this. So there's this, there's this mentality that kind of gets a narrative that gets woven in that my job is to sort of give of myself for, for other people. Um, I, I had a, a pastor, when I was talking about soul care, a pastor said to me, well, I'd, I'd rather, I'd rather burn out than rust out. And I was like, so there's only two options. That's it. You do burn out or rust out. You know, he, he thought I was encouraging. I don't know what rust out, what he thought I meant. I was just talking about soul care. Like, and so what I say to pastors a lot, um, is this your own soul care is your first priority because we only give what we have and so we that's that's not some sort of selfish or narcissistic thing we're called to care for our own soul and our own soul wellness is what we give to other people and it's a, it's just a massive problem i mean the number of people leaving ministry even before COVID was, was astounding and it's, it's even worse with COVID. So um, we're in a bad place. Uh, I just talked to a, a guy the other day and he was, he was retired and, um, and the, they, they called him out of retirement because they're just, the need is so, so many pulpits are, are not filled right now. And it's just, people are leaving for all kinds of reasons, but it's somewhere at the heart. It's, we've got to care for our soul, our embodied soul. <laughs> Yeah, and, and let's get into some of that language too. Uh, again, I, I like the phrase "embodied soul" myself, and I mean we don't have to debate theology if you end up finding we have a. I don't actually even want to even try to be a disagreeable on the whole thing. I'm just curious on just on the language itself. So, like, what's the difference between a self and a soul, and what happens when? Uh, like, I've sensed there's like Gnosticism in our day, especially even among conservatives, that we. Sometimes we accuse other people of being Gnostics, but in the sense we've kind of cut ourselves off from our bodies. I, that's my take on a lot of this stuff. Um, so what happens when we lose the connection between, well, what, what happens when we just think of, our, of ourselves as a body and a soul instead of an embodied soul? Let me just make it simple like that and see how, yeah. how you think about that. That's really good. That's really good. 
you know, uh, one of the things Dallas often talked about is, is that which you are called to care for, you must understand. Yeah. Whether that's a house plant or your dog or whatever, you have to understand like what, how does this work? And we're called to care for our lives, our souls and our bodies. So we need to know what they are. And um, our bodies uh, are in, in the, I, I say in soul bodies or embodied souls, because I don't want that Gnosticism you're talking about. I, I want us, we are, you can't separate the two. In fact, that's why um, right after the initial chapter about having a soul, the next chapter is on the body because uh, you know, I didn't want to wait six chapters to talk about our bodies. You mean right away, let's, let's make this um, very clear that we, God designed humans to be in bodies and our bodies are wonderful things and um, and we have the and we have souls. So in the secular world, like in the academy where I am, <clears throat> and of course I'm at a Christian school, so that doesn't quite count. But I mean, in the in the academy right now, the the accepted view of the human person is that we are a number of cells that have randomly come together. They will randomly disintegrate after one dies, um, and that we're these accidental little lumps of fermenting cells. Like there's no spiritual dimension to us, and um, so to, to say, no, you have a soul is important. That means there's a spiritual dimension to me. You can't find my soul. You can't slice me up and go, there's his soul right by his spleen. But it's, it's, it's in me. It's, 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 it's woven into my body. They're inseparable. And, um, and it's really crucial uh, that we have souls and that our souls be well. They're made for wellness. You know, that old hymn, it's well with my soul. That's what we're, the, our, our souls were designed for that. And there's ways to soul wellness and ways to disintegrate our souls as well. Now, and I, I appreciate the organization of your book too. And I thought that was a good move going right to the body versus waiting until later. So I think that that message came through really clear. So I, I, I think that's super helpful in the present environment. That's going to bless a lot of folks if they get a chance to take a look at uh, your book, The Good and Beautiful You. You also include a lot of journaling exercises with, and you have this, you have this group study guide. And uh, I was just curious um what 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 role do you encourage everybody to journal if they're going to do spiritual formation do you think it's for everybody um if a person's saying oh i've tried that before but it didn't really work for me like what what kind of advice would you give since that seems to be a kind of a key way to put what you're saying in your book into practice well journaling has been huge for me i mean, I, mean I i started it really early when richard was I was first doing the disciplines and he encouraged me, he said, you know, it's, it's good to, to write out things that your interactions with God, your discussions with God. So I got a journal way back, way back when, gosh, this is now coming up on 42 years ago. Um, is that right? What was, anyway, yeah, about 40, at least 40 years ago, same journal. I have the same journal. It's a three ring binder. And, uh, and I have stacks. I mean, in, in my, in my closet, I have, I keep every year's a new set of journals. I love it. Uh, it's it's important to me, but I do want to say it isn't for everybody. Maybe my friend John Ortberg likes to joke and say, "Jim, I hate journaling. I've always hated it. It's never worked for me, and I felt guilty forever because I thought you can't even be a Christian if you don't journal." So some people, it's just not their thing. Yeah. But for me, I, it's indispensable for me. I it's a way I take like if I'm studying scripture or um, or reading a devotional classic kind of book a dialogue I'm having with God, a prayer. I mean, my journal is just the place where it just crystallizes those thoughts. They come, they come together 
in the journal. So I'm a big fan, but I also want to give people grace to say, maybe it isn't, you know, there's certain disciplines that I don't get a lot out of either. So you know, that's good. That's good. Practice and see what works. No, thank you. And, and just, you, you hit it a little bit about the shape of the book, at least the beginning. Could you just kind of give readers a sense? And I want you to give all those, all the goodies away there, but like, what, what, how did you structure the book and maybe just give a little uh, rationale for the way that you decided to let the chapters flow together and yeah, well, I, I, I once I, uh, well, you know, I, I, as I'm, as you mentioned, I mean, I, I did a, a week long uh, therapy, and um, it was, it was about restoring my soul. That's, that's really what it was. It was a Christian counselor I worked with, a person that prayed with me throughout that that week, and we very much went to God for everything. But one of the things that just came clear from that time was, I have a soul. It's very needy. Mm. not in a bad way and it needs it it demands it really won't it won't be neglected it'll it'll it won't it refuses to be ignored but we have these needs and and for me what I, I began to see oh wow these deep longings of the soul like for example a longing for my body to be seen as sacred I mean that's 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 a soul thing I think um when when our bodies are harmed by someone or we see someone else's body harmed it just it hits us at a level because instinctively our souls know our bodies are sacred and they're meant to be treated that way and then we have a longing to be desired people want to be wanted and that's that's if you walk into a room and we've all done it and you look around and you get the feeling i don't think these people want me here it hurts like that's a soul pain and so we, we desire to be desired. We, we want to be loved without condition. Um, I mean, we want to be loved. Everybody wants to be loved, but we also want to be loved without condition. Like if we think, well, so-and-so loves me because, and because of a, something, right? How I look, how I, what I do. That's not what we want. We want unconditional love. So I began to look at these things and there, and I just covered like about four chapters in the book, but I looked at all of these things all the way up to a longing for glorification, a longing for to see our loved ones in the next life. That's a soul longing. And um, so I just went, wow, the soul has these needs. And then what, what, what was so cool in the three-year process it was for me writing it was I began to see that every one of these needs are met by Christ. That, that they're, again, they're not selfish and narcissistic. They're built into my soul, but no one can really fulfill those things except God. And so God, the Father, Son, and Spirit comes in and meets all of those needs. And whether it's, let's say it's a forgiveness of sins, that's a need in our soul. Um, that's, that's built into us. When I sin, I feel that in my conscience, I feel that gap. Um, but God in Christ has forgiven us. And so that's why we can say, my sin, oh, the bliss of this glorious thought, my sin, not in part, but the whole, he's nailed to the cross and I bear it no more. Praise the Lord, praise the Lord. Oh, my soul, right? That's right there in the song. That's so good. It's good. And, and I was, I, I love the very first exercise on holy leisure in the, the way that it was kind of an open-ended piece. Um, could, again, I, I think it's the only one piece I'd love you just to, to kind of give away on online here, but like, that's the, how did, why did you start there? And 
and describe what that would actually be over against, like you even said, you can't go for a walk if, the, if your goal is to get exercise. So what, what's holy leisure? Because I thought, wow, this would drive me an Enneagram 3 crazy, but I love it. So it really messed with me when I did that. So can it is, talk a little bit about that one. Yeah. yeah, it's a hard one for really anybody. I mean, yeah. it is one of the most difficult disciplines. I mean, you, you when you hear it, you think, well, this should be easy, right? Because it's simply doing nothing. <laughs> This right, and I often say, doing nothing for God's sake. And you got to be careful how you say, do nothing for God's sake, like doing nothing for God's sake. And um, and then, as you alluded to, it's I, I'll say this: don't do anything that accomplishes something, because that's that's what holy leisure is sort of putting to death that need to establish my value, my worth, my importance on something that I've done. And so even if it's like getting the laundry done or whatever it is. So the idea of, of I'm just going to be, I put that as the very first practice in the book, because essentially what I want a reader to take away from the book is you didn't do anything to merit your existence. You came into this world. You didn't do anything to get here. You came equipped with all these wonderful aspects of who you are, this incredible, amazing embodied soul with all your talents and abilities and all these things you didn't do anything so by doing holy leisure you're just acknowledging my value is established by my being not my doing yeah i love that i love that yeah thank you uh we have a lot of pastors that listen to this um podcast and i guess a dual question i mean it's um how can pastors learn to not only attend to their own soul so that they can serve others really well and be blessings. But I'm guessing underneath all this, I mean, I think pastors should also be training their folks to do spiritual formation as well. Right. And I'm sure you, you that you've thought about that. So like, how can a pastor learn to not only care for their soul, but actually lead a real discipleship program that takes the very types of spiritual, Christian spiritual formation practices that you've spent a you know lifetime studying and helping lay people to actually bring these into their lives. Now that's a big question, but just well, yeah, Brian, that, that is that's the big question. That's the sixty-four yeah. million dollar question. Well, I think it's at the heart of what we're called to do as pastors. Yeah, you know, we're, I often say that most pastors are under under the um, the oppression of establishing the success of your church on the ABCs: attendance, building, and cash. We have a system that's the ABCs run the day. And it's 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 in the people that are sitting in our pews. If you're in a if you're in a denomination that has someone above you, an episcopacy, you know, some it's in them too, you know. Um it's it's just shot through the whole system that we 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 value a church on the basis of the ABCs, attendance, building, and cash. Okay. We look at a church that has all of those or in spades, and we think that's a church, that's a success. Um, Jesus never said that. He, for him, it was the D. It was discipleship. It's not the ABC. It's the D. Go, therefore, and make disciples or apprentices. I like that word better. Um, apprentices of, of all ethnic groups. I'm in the Great Commission now. which And then immerse them in Trinitarian reality or baptizing them in the name of the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit. That's more than just getting people wet. It's about helping them live in Trinitarian, a world that's that's shot through with the Trinity everywhere, and then teach them to do what I said, which is the, what we get in the Sermon on the Mount, how to love people, how to speak the truth, not lie, how to 
not be angry, you know, something. So discipleship is the measurement by which we say this is success. Unfortunately, because the ABCs run everything, um, it's hard to get this going. But it starts with the pastor. It starts with the, when the, the senior leader, um, it has to be the vision for them to say, no, this is what this is about. We're here for the D. And the first D is me. <laughs> Discipleship, I got to live this myself. So I need to say, I am a Jesus apprentice. I want to immerse myself in the, in the world of God that's all around me, the Trinity. And then I want to do what he said. And then I want to teach others to do that. That's, but boy, we're up against a system that that's hard. I was just talking to um, my friend, Steve Porter. He teaches at Biola uh, in spiritual formation. And he's one of the leaders in formation in the movement. And he said they were, they were getting a new pastor. They were doing a search for a new pastor at his church. And he was on the committee. And he said, there was this woman who just said in the committee, she goes, well, you know what I want? I want somebody who can preach and who can get that balcony full because that balcony has been empty and I want to see it full. And Steve said, but you know, there's more to being a shepherd of the community than just being a dynamic preacher. And she goes, I know I'm not supposed to say it, but that's how I feel. <laughs> I mean, so she, the ABCs, right? She wants to see attendance, right? The A, she, she wants to measure, she bring me a pastor who can do that. That's what I want. And so it's, it's a challenging I mean, this is what Dallas Willard spent his career talking about was this is that's why he called he wrote the book the great omission from which is about the great omission from the great commission we, we're just not doing it I love it I think just I love I actually I never heard the ABCs that's such a helpful rubric I know the people listening are going to like yeah that's that's how I'm getting measured now and just naming it I think in a part let's gives you something then you can figure out how to work out of that so I just appreciate the clarity of really stating what the what we're up against when we talk about these things what are can some I just of say one quick thing though yeah, Brian? I mean I do want to say this there ain't nothing wrong with attendance billing and cash right so in other words it's not like let's blow up the buildings and let's forget this and try it, 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 the People are coming. That's good. There's that's attendance. That's a good thing. Having a nice building, a place to meet is good. Having money to do ministry and missions and all that is good. It's just, is that the measurement of success? So I just, I always kind of want to add that caveat to say, that's not bad to have those things, but that's not why we're doing it. I think it's right. I even think about it just even from a business perspective. Um, it's like, there's difference between lead measurements and lag measurements. And, you know, so let's just say even the ABCs are legitimate measurements of ministry. <laughs> You're only going to get that if you've implemented, I would say, a deep discipleship program. And then if we have fully formed Christians, then yeah, I'm going to guess they're going to show up. <laughs> you might need a building, you might not, but I mean, you might, you'll need some facilities and you will have cash available for more mission because people begin to actually share their resources. So me, uh, to me, it's like, we just need to put another set of um, measurements in advance of that, if, um, or something like that. That's how I like to think about it. Cause, because uh, uh, otherwise, if you just focus on that, then you end up chasing the wrong thing and you don't do the things that might get that, which is what right. discipleship really is. So, but I, I just, I loved your answer though. So I just wanted to, to say that, and I don't, I didn't hear anything negative from you necessarily on that either, just to, to be, to be clear. So when you work with, um, a pastors or spiritual leaders have, have you found a couple of like go-to questions that 
initiate a deep spiritual conversation in most people. Again, you know, you always have to be flexible, but are you have some favorite questions that seem to really help people to seek to grow deeper? Yeah, I mean, I know a question Richard would, uh, Richard Foster and I were prayer partners for um, several years when we were living in the same city. Uh, we don't anymore, but but um, but he would always begin with, you know, how is how is your soul? He would he, that was just a question, and you know, at first it was kind of off putting. I was like, oh, that's a deep question. <laughs> but uh, eventually, I grew to the place where I understood what that means, and you know, he's saying. Are, are you living with with joy and contentment and confidence in in your life with God? Um, are you are you are you feeling pressured and frazzled and and that sort of thing? So um, it's just such an open question. I think it allows people to to take it wherever they want to go, and it, it's it often leads to really fruitful discussions and confessions. At times, I found it'll lead to people just saying, "Isn't hey, it not so good? My soul's not so good." And these are even people in ministry, you know, even even successful people in ministry, who just shared pretty honest with me that their own soul wasn't wasn't well. So, that's a good question for me, anyway. Oh, that is that is a powerful question, and I and I agree, and I think people, especially us in ministry, we have to have spaces where somebody could ask us those questions. Last, um, we let it bottle up, and then we sort of deform while we're actually doing the work that uh, God has called us to do. Yeah, right. Yeah, I want to be mindful of the time. I know you only have a couple more minutes. So I want to just switch to some just some last closing kind of fast questions I'd like to ask all my guests. But yeah. and you, you know, you just you just added a fourth book to your original trilogy. Um, I'm just curious if you have like a what's next. And is there a book that's always kind of been in you that maybe you've been afraid to publish but that you'd love to get at at some point before uh, uh, you quit writing books? Well, you know, I um, when Dallas wrote The Great Omission, uh, that that's kind of always stood out with me. In some ways, you can look at my books and they're sort of, I, I sometimes call myself sort of Dallas for dummies. <laughs> he writes The Divine Conspiracy, you know, and then I write this trilogy that gets at some of what he was doing, but a more accessible way. But his book, The Great Omission, really was looking at this problem. And so I, I think I would like to write about the Great Commission as a way of saying, what does that really look like? Because I don't think, I think we've almost lost the word discipleship. It's kind of, if you go to a church and say, do you have a plan for discipleship? They'll probably say something like, oh yeah, we have Sunday school, we have small groups, we have some educational opportunities. And, um, but that's not, discipleship is a whole life process. It's, yes. it's, it, it is, I mean, Dallas said, I've never gone into a church where I saw they had a, a class on how to bless those who curse you. I mean, <laughs> we just sort of stay away from it. But I, I think it, to just raise the issue in a book about like, what does it mean to be his apprentice, to be his disciple? And what does it mean to immerse myself in Trinitarian reality? That's the second part of the Great Commission. And then the third being, how do I do what he said to do? What is the, what the, what's that going to look like tomorrow if I'm going to be, you know, he said, let your yes be yes and your no be no. In other words, he was really saying, don't lie. Like, just tell, tell the truth, plain speech, the Quakers would call it. What's that going to look like for me tomorrow? What's it going to look like in a committee meeting or a discussion, a hard discussion with a, with someone, you know, how do I... How do I live it? So something about, and I did, I, I wrote two books. One's called the, the Magnificent Story and the Magnificent Journey. And I never wrote the third book, which is the Magnificent Mission. So I might want to take what I'm talking about and the Magnificent Commission kind of a thing and, and, um, and look at that. So, but then the other day, Brian, I was teaching and it was uh, some younger guys, guys in their thirties, which to me is young now. 
<laughs> but you yes. know, and they're in ministry, and uh, and one of them just came up to me and said, "I know your next book. You've got to write the good and beautiful, uh, good and beautiful gospel, because we we don't." Which is kind of what I was trying to do with the with the magnificent story to say, "What's our message?" Yeah. But and so it might be the the, the good and beautiful news or something because um, I think. For, mo- for a lot of Christians, if you ask, you know, what's the gospel? It's something about getting into heaven when you die. It's really not about getting heaven into us now. So I don't know. That could come about too. I don't know. Well, that sounds good. Both of those sound fantastic. Um, <laughs> just curious, um, like, you know, you've been a teacher of spiritual formation for a long time. And like, um, you know, what keeps you grounded? Um, you know, what's a typical day? I'm not asking you for you to reveal everything, but I mean, like, what's, what's it kind of look like for, for you? Like, what's your maybe rule of life if you use that type of a language? Yeah, I do. Well, I think you're going to like my answer, Brian, because a central practice for me is centering prayer. Oh, cool. I mean, it is, it is, um, it's the, it's the heartbeat for me of my life with God, of my Christian life, everything. And I, I know when I've been able to set aside time for that. And for me, I like to have a long time. Like I need a whole hour to just be, be in a place with God and, and have time to be still and quiet. Um, I'm a contemplative by nature. I'm introverted. So solitude works for me, but that's really big for me. And then just going through my day and trying to be more intentional with, with, um, how I interact with people. I'll look over one practice I've been doing for a while is to uh, look at my daily schedule and, and sort of pray through I'll just say, okay, I've got that meeting with that person or that thing's going to happen. I'm going to be with Brian Russell on his podcast, you know, turn that into prayers so that I'm looking at this as a, this is a sacred event, what we're doing right now. I'm getting to meet you for the first time, even though it's by pixels not in person, but, um, you know, so I just, I look at, I try to look at my whole day and see it um, in light of, of all we've been talking about. I love that. Thank you very much. I actually just like that idea of, uh, I always look at my schedule, but I think I love the idea of just actually saying prayers in advance of that. So thank you for that little tip there. I think I, that sounds uh, something that's easily to take to do that. Uh, so appreciate that. Now, it is probably, easy to, I mean, it is easy to do, but it's yeah. not, I, I have to be intentional about it. Yes. I'll find that I, I will let it slip. I'll just be like, I'll just blow into the next day and not do it. So for me, I, I try to set aside like seven minutes. That's a weird number, but I'll set aside seven minutes. I'll say, okay, these seven minutes are dedicated to praying through my day. Love it. And um, yeah. No, I love that. I absolutely love that. So thank you. Now, here's probably the hardest question I'll ask you of, um, of all the books you've ever really looked at outside and in, in, in outside of scripture, like what would be, you know, two or three books that have really shaped you deeply? And that could be recently, or that could be in your past, some past part of your life, but what would be a couple, two or three books that come to mind that have really touched you deeply beyond just reading scripture? That's easy for me. I mean, because cool. Celebration of Discipline, I came upon that in 1981. Richard wrote that in 78, but I, I, um, that book absolutely turned my world upside down. I just, I didn't know about the, I was a new Christian, as I said at the beginning, I didn't know about it. And then I, after I learned them, I assumed every Christian did these things, you know, but for me, that, that was transforming. And then, uh, and then of course the divine conspiracy, when that came out, I was, I was a, t- a teaching assistant for Dallas, a class we did at Fuller and, um, he was writing the divine conspiracy and it was literally coming off his printer. Like he would bring copies of chapters and say, well, if you'd like to read this, James, go ahead. 
And I would, and I was just like, this book. And then, so Divine Conspiracy, I probably read eight times. It's just, uh, it's hard to read. I, I wish it was more accessible. I mean, uh, he, he, needs, he needs editors who really make him, he thinks he's being simple when he's not, you know, but, um, but if you can wade through it, there's, there's incredible depth there. Um, yeah, those, those are huge. Uh, the Imitation of Christ was really big for me yeah. earlier in my life. Teresa's interior castle. I've, I've waded through that, that castle for several years. Uh, Wesley's sermons, you know, I used to unregularly read Wesley's sermons and uh, study them. And, um, you know, I have, I have one of the editions that has all the scripture. That brother hardly gave a sentence in his sermon that wasn't quoting scripture in some way. So I would just be going, wow, I learned a ton studying his sermons. Really changed me. Yeah, that, that's uh, well, obviously you're, you're speaking to the choir on the Wesley stuff over here at, at the Asbury Satyr, but that is, it is amazing. That's the one thing I love about, like you just said, is that um, he really almost embodies Psalm 1, like meditating on the, on the law of the Lord day and night. That's like, it just comes right out in his speech. So I love how you describe that. Yeah, that's, I mean, the footnotes in the sermon, I mean, the, the footnotes are half the page and it's all, it's all like, these are, he's quoting scripture in almost every sentence, not directly, but there's an allusion to it. So that guy just, when he said he was a man of one book, course that wasn't true he was widely read but boy did he know the bible absolutely so good yeah and just final question again i want to thank you for coming on the 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 show today um uh, jim and uh, thank you for writing the good and beautiful you and i hope our readers will take a look at that or everything in the show notes but if people want to reach out or just connect with you maybe online what's the what's the best place where people can find out a little bit more about you and uh, yeah uh it's uh the apprentice apprentice institute.org uh, it's a long one. Sorry for that. Apprenticeinstitute.org. Um, that's we we do a lot. It, uh, it, that the Apprentice Institute's at Friends University. We have an annual conference called the Apprentice Gathering that people may be interested in. It's a fantastic three-day event. We do we've done we've done it ten times. Next will be our eleventh one coming up. Great speakers: Tish Harrison, Warren, John Ortberg, Rich Velotis, just to name a few. Kirk Thompson. So some of the leading thinkers and speakers in form, the formation world gather together tons of workshops that go deep. And so check, I hope people would check that out. Um, I love it when pastors come and when they bring their staff, that's always just, I love it. And then they can talk together about what they studied and did. So apprenticeinstitute.org is a place to, to get connected. And just finally, I just want to give a word of thanks to you for uh, trying to live into the person that God created you to be, sharing your gifts, uh, your wisdom, studying and uh, living faithfully, and you know even carrying on some of the things that you learned from some of your own mentors. I think that's uh, really wonderful, and I want to thank you for that, and I want to thank you for being my guest today on my podcast. Thank you. It was a blast. Great discussion. It was fun. Thank you, Brian. Oh, you're welcome. It was great to meet you. And thank you for listening all the way to the end to, of this week's edition of the Deep Dive Spirituality Conversations podcast. Until next time, uh, show up, pay attention, and recognize that God's got way more invested in you than even you imagine.